Welcome to the Scale Ups Podcast, where each week you get to hear Sean Steele, professional CEO, growth mentor, and advisory board chair, unpack the strategies that successful founders have used to achieve scale in their businesses. Stay tuned as he interviews the entrepreneurs who've made it, learns from industry experts, and follows a group of founders still striving to scale. G'day everyone, Sean from the Scale Ups Podcast, just letting you know that today in the Mark Bryan interview, about 20 minutes in, something went awry with my camera. And so there's a couple of minutes there where you got some funky video, but all of the audio works perfectly fine and the video kicks back in again. So please bear with me. Enjoy. G'day everyone and welcome to the Scale Ups Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Steele, and this is the podcast where we help first-time founders learn the secrets of scaling so they can fundamentally fulfill the potential of their businesses, make big decisions with greater confidence, and of course, maximize the value and impact they can create in the world. Uh, I'm joined today by Mark Bryan, uh, Director of the Accelerate team at Pembo Capital Partners. How are you today, Mark? Great. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me on the show. Really, really pleased to be here. No, it's my pleasure. Uh, my pleasure. And we were, um, I, I always love a, I always love a referral. And as I think I said to you, when we first met, you know, good people always know good people. And uh, I know we were introduced by a good friend of the podcast who we've interviewed uh, not that long ago, Steve Grace, uh, who'd had successfully scaled his company from two mil to 45 mil and then, and then started the nudge group, which is disrupting uh, startup recruitment. And when I asked him for people that he knew that had good experience around capital raising and exits and equity valuation and IPOs. And, and you were the first name that came up. So, uh, you know, you and I have had a bit of, um, a bit of, uh, chat of course, uh, offline and from our discussions to date, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more for those who don't know uh, about your background. Maybe if I can just, um, offer a few sort of quick insights for people, you've been in this space for 20 years now, uh, which is showing your age and mine. Um, and, uh, one of the things I think you know will really capture people's interest is you've had a lot of experience um, in the IPO uh, process, which of course many founders uh, you know put on a pedestal as, as something that they uh, they might like to consider or, or shoot for, and that that includes the IPO of MYOB, of Elmo, of Whisper, of ReadyTech, and these are these are brands people will know and and see in the papers. But you've also worked with a lot of founders um, and CEOs and CFOs to help them achieve the exit they wanted, which may have nothing to do with an IPO. It may be uh, you know, some other kind of two payday model, um, which I, I know is a, uh, some language that you use that I'll be keen to unpack with you. And, and prior to that, you'd been heading up equities research teams. And the thing I like about that is you spent all this time from very different perspectives, looking at the ingredients of what it actually takes to scale, but also to create good optionality for exits, which of course, many founders are keen that they may actually not know what kind of exit they want, but they're keen for optionality. You know, they're keen, they're keen to have as many options as they can uh, so they can choose whether they want to step back or, you know, and stay involved or, or actually, you know, sort of exit completely. But the last, you've been with uh, Pemba Capital Partners now for the last year and a half, is that right? That's right, yeah, starting to touch upon 18 months, that's right. 18 months, okay. And can you maybe just give us a quick intro to Pemba Capital Partners in terms of the kind of key clients that you guys are focused on and just the, the sort of the nature and orientation of Pemba? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, delighted to. So Pemba, Pemba itself has actually been established for just over 20 years within the market. Pemba is a growth-based investor. You'll see from a lot of our marketing materials on our website, you'll see lots of pictures of mountains and Sherpas. And Pemba itself is a commonly used name for a Nepalese Sherpa. And that's very much, that really goes to the heart and DNA of, of how we see ourselves, which is very much the support crew. 
So we're, we're a partner investor. We always refer to our, our companies as, as partner companies. And um, we're very much a non-intrusive team as well. So we're there to provide support, to help shine the light. But it's really um, it's management and the founders summit that they want to get to. Uh, we're sector focused. Uh, so we, we focus across five key sectors, technology, education, non-bank financial services, healthcare, and business services. And oh, we've okay. done over 200 partner investments over those two decades, and particularly mm -hmm. in the last few years, partly because of the change in the Australian economy, and we've done a lot in the technology space. So we've done, I think, more um, two and a half times more mid-market technology deals than um, any other um, growth-based investor. So it's an area that we, we really enjoy enjoy playing in. Uh, even just listening to those numbers, so 200 deals over 20 years, 10 deals a year is pretty much, you know, one, one a month, which suggests, you know, that I, for some people it might sound like a huge number and some people maybe not as much. But when you just think about their level of experience that and knowledge that's built across the team uh, of Pemba, that's pretty, um, that's pretty extensive. That's right. There is there is a lot of domain expertise within the business. Probably to dig into that a little bit more, we we have three core teams within the business, and we're we're quite unusual in the sense that we tend to originate around about eighty percent of our partner deals directly with with founders. So rather than relying on advisors for introductions, we're actually actively out in in market. So what we've done in recent years is we've screened the market across those five sectors that I spoke about, and we've gone one step further. We've looked at the subsectors and the niches within those sectors and identified and mapped the areas that we want to, to really partner with companies. And then we'll go out to market via our dedicated origination team speaking to a lot of founders, a lot of company directors, and uh, and work out really which which of the companies within those niches and areas that we want to deploy capital into that are there and interested in a in a partnership. And we then have a dedicated transact team that works with those companies to go through the transaction. And then finally, we have the team that I look after, which is our Accelerate team. And our Accelerate team has been established for, for really three value propositions for the partner companies. Um, number one is to help them drive a buy and build strategy. So help them look and identify what would be really good businesses for them to partner with and bring those into to what we call the platform. So apart from scaling organically, we can also scale through the addition of other businesses into the mix. Um, secondly, we'll typically sit on the boards with management and help provide them with strategic and operational insights. And then third, thirdly and ultimately, we help them prepare for a lucrative and premium exit, which to your point earlier, could be a number of options as a number of routes to that. It may well be IPO as we have done, but it could also be a trade buyer, or indeed it could be a sale to uh, a private equity player with a slightly different focus. Mm, yep, okay, got it. So the three teams are really, splitting up responsibilities to make sure that we find the deals, we get the deals done, but then your team is really charged with the, yeah, I always think this is a interesting, you know, throwing something over the fence. I'm sure it doesn't happen that way, but I, it's like everyone's got an expectation of everybody else, but you guys get the expectations. Like, okay, great. We've got this thing. Now you actually really have to put the fire under it. So that's uh, you know, that's a pretty interesting challenge for you. That's right. Uh, well, one of the things, um, you know, I guess today, uh, obviously I've invited you here to talk to our, community of founders um, who many of them are first-time founders and many are still in that sort of 
two mil to 10 mil or 15 mil revenue range. And so, uh, and haven't scaled their businesses or scaled a business or maybe even operated in a business that's larger than that in size um, before. And so they're thinking they're quite often, these are businesses usually that are going very well. Um, you know, that's, they're not usually coming to us because the business is broken. They're coming to us because um, they're looking for ways to navigate through you know, inevitable challenges, learn about the things that they don't know yet, think about yeah. what might be those um, exit options. Should I be taking on capital? Should I should I even be thinking about that? What kind of exits are available to me? How do I optimize um, that financial outcome? You know, are there points in time where I should take my chips off the table? What if I want to stay involved? What if I don't want to stay involved? You know, all of these sort of strategic questions mm-hmm. they are that they, of course, start thinking about um, and seems to typically happen around that, you know, if it's a single founder, maybe around that sort of 30-person stage where they're starting to, build some management in, uh, you know, sort of early stages, but probably also getting a little bit tired because, uh, you know, they're probably still doing a lot yeah. uh, and thinking about what those next stages. So I'm, so I'm really interested to draw out today some of those uh, key things that you think found from everything that you've seen, things that you think founders should really be focused on in order to achieve scale. Um, and uh, I guess one one place that I'd like to start is maybe if you can actually just take us back to the start of your career before we jump straight into those. How did you end up in the capital markets in the first place? Like, what was your sort of career path to get there? Yeah, it's a good, good question. As you said, it does take us back a, a little while. I, I'd always had from a very young age, as a, as a teenager, a real passion and interest in markets generally. Um, it was a time when markets were being deregulated and there was a lot of excitement and uh, media coverage around a market's career generally. And I I found myself, I studied economics at university. I found myself in a fortunate position to um, join an investment bank uh, on a a graduate program. And this was was in the late 90s, 1997, 98. And that was obviously a time when the tech bubble was just beginning. The first tech bubble was just beginning to really, really take off and expand. And um, yeah, I fortunately found myself in a position where I could join uh, an equity research team focusing on at the time UK technology, which quickly expanded to European technology and then over time um, t- took on much more of a global mandate. So I, I spent the first 12 years of my career in London with, with two large investment banks, ABN AMRO and Deutsche Bank. And much of that time was focused on providing investment insights into software and services companies. So I think it's really a combination, Sean, of the two. It was an avid interest in technology coupled with a, a real passion for the markets. Mm, yeah, I love that. Okay, so some very interesting grounding that got you to here. And then given everything that you've done from them, um, uh, sorry, since then, when you think about those, and I think it's always a really challenging process to go, when somebody says, can you crystallize your 20 years of experience into you know three or four things, you may not be able to catch a, a capture, of course, all of those, and also without them becoming too generic. But um what are some of those things that spring to mind for you? What's what's the first thing that you like to offer as, you know, it, kind of above all else, something that you really need to think about as a founder is what? I think that founders are what I've seen in businesses, both large, larger listed businesses um, on the stock markets and also smaller private businesses that are going up through a much, much faster growth scale it really comes down to the organizational structure that you build into the business and and getting particularly the right people in those in those seats and particularly for your audience and the businesses that are going through the scale up process i think you've really got to try to think about what the org structure needs to look like in three years from now 
and actually start building it at this point. And that's not always easy because a lot of founders are obviously bootstrapping their operations and they may not necessarily have either the capital at this point um, or the or the P&L structure to be able to make those investments. But the more that you can think about doing that, the, the better at this stage because you naturally then move into that into that growth phase. We meet a lot of businesses that tend to say, for example, underinvest in the finance function. Um, and that's okay when we meet them and we partner with them because that's something that we work with them very quickly at the outset to address. And one of the early hires we often make is a really well-credentialed chief financial officer. Um, and that really helps the founders set some cadence in the business around the budget process, how to report to the board, and then getting structure into um, the contracts they're signing, making sure that they're, they're optimized, that the pricing's optimized, and that then ultimately ends up helping really drive the, the P&L growth of the business. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a case of setting, setting a really strong strategy in terms of the org structure and then not, not being afraid to make those investments and really look to, to bring in the talent around you. And I guess that's one of the reasons why sometimes people might think about taking on a capital partner at that stage, mightn't they? And they they're, they're probably, they know they need to start really hiring some good, some good strength. And they're on the one hand, if they're looking to bootstrap this themselves, they're going, well, the best I can afford is this. And that person mm -hmm. may never have actually been to that next stage. So it doesn't necessarily might be, you know, a great cultural fit and able to contribute, you know, um, some value at the level of role, um, that they're, uh, that they're coming in at, but that doesn't mean that they know that they can walk in on day one and go, well, I know where it is that we're trying to go and let's chart a path to get there because they actually may not be able to afford the person who can, who can bring that wisdom. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. The decision point as to when you take capital is not, not an easy one. Um, but what I would say it's about the right partner. I think it's really important. Capital itself has become far more freely available over the last, years and that's in part a reflection of what's happened to the economy in general and actually in many regards COVID has, has, has increased that that um, capital because in order to keep the economies afloat globally all governments have flushed the system with lots of liquidity so there's an awful lot of capital out there looking for a home but the key the key is getting the right the right partner that can potentially help you build out that that structure within the business but i think you you absolutely should always be shooting for the best and trying to get those right skills in place um it was it's an interesting i think a mentor of mine once told me that you should really dedicate within business much more of your time with your top performers um, and get them growing more than actually your your underperformers because you'll spend so much time with your underperformers that it will distract you from the work you're doing with your top performers and I think the same is, is true when you're setting an org structure, make that incremental investment to align with partners or talent within the business that have already gone through that journey. And, and, and you'll find that it is a much, much easier path. Naturally, how can you expect some people that haven't gone through that journey already to, to necessarily understand the point, the point that you want to get to? Yeah. But the more that the founder can free themselves up to be working on the business and not in the business, getting caught up in the detail and actually thinking for an forward thinking fashion and getting the strategy really moving quickly, the, the better. And that, that again goes to that talent investment and making, making those decisions at the outset. It sounds so, you know, 
it sounds so simple, um, yet it's such a big challenge for founders because, you know, most people will say, well, you know, everyone will say, that including all the successful founders as well as the experts, you know, you've got to get the right team. And so you, you can't, it almost can start to sort of wash past people. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know I've got to get the right team, but I can't afford that person yet. Um, you've mentioned that actually one of the team members that you typically start with is the quality of the finance function. Um, what, you know, a few examples you gave were making sure the business planning and the cadence and the rhythm and good quality contracts and price optimization and therefore probably profit optimization. What, let's assume that, okay, I've, I've invested, I've, um, I've got a good finance leader. Do you naturally go to a next role first? Do you kind of go, okay, we've got finance, I'm comfortable with that. Do you then naturally go for sales or is there another sort of space that you tend to, how do you think about who would you next recommend? And I'm sure it's different for every business, but what are the questions you might ask yourself that would help you figure out if you're a founder, where should I put those dollars next? Yeah, I think, I think you're right. It does depend on each, each business. And um, obviously in order to fund these, um, these, let's call them talent acquisitions, you need to have a strong and growing revenue line. And so one of the most powerful areas of investment we, we often see is around the sales and marketing side. And um, that's, we, we meet, again, we meet a number of companies that have got great products, great services, and we can see how we can drive up that growth even more with some investment in sales and marketing. So getting the go-to-market right, I think, is is, is equally as important. Um, you know, as, as I said, we, we tend to prioritize finance function, but that's not necessarily um, in isolation. We'll tend to, to do it as a, as a suite of um, investments and, in, and improvements in the business. And definitely go-to-market is one of those. The other, um, the other, tip I guess uh, I'd highlight is, is is getting the messaging to the market right and to, to your customers right. So we help a lot of companies really uh, improve, let's say, their, their elevator speech so that we get the branding and the messaging really succinctly clear what the value proposition is for the business. Um, you'd be surprised how many founders you meet that have really good businesses, great businesses actually, that struggle to enunciate exactly what that, that business does in a really succinct, short short um, fashion and so getting that messaging is right as well so you know, we will often partner with um, specific brand agencies and messaging experts to help founders just hone, hone their message so it's across it's across that org structure really finance is important absolutely go to market is important and then in due course um, there'll be other areas obviously chief commercial officer and, and cto that these are all really important parts of the business but it's sometimes a case of having to just prioritize which which ones you need um, at the outset. Mm, yeah, that's super interesting. And I I would agree with you. Um, there are, I mean, actually fundamentally, one of the main reasons this podcast was created in the first place is one of the things that frustrates me the most, um, having worked with all sorts of, you know, founders and general managers and CEOs for a long time, is seeing businesses with great products and services that actually are probably the best in the market at what they do, but they get out yep. customer acquisitioned, if that mm -hmm. was a verb, out business yep. by their competitors who are actually better at sales and marketing, better at customer acquisition, get market share better, have better messaging. The product may not be as good, but actually they're fundamentally better at the game of business, if you like. Uh, yeah. And they're the ones that get pole position. And I find that so it just kills me to see, you know, founders with these great um these great products and services. And they're quite often come from you know, founders who've come from an industry and they've seen a problem, so they've gone to solve the problem with a great um, product or service offering. But 
just don't yep. have the background in sales and That's marketing right. or if because usually if they come from a sales and marketing background they're really good at finding the customers but they might actually lack you know sort of solving the problem in a really unique uh way so they yeah sometimes their retention doesn't work out quite as well or the relationship building with customers isn't as good oh absolutely and that again goes to the capital part sean as well as it, it, it's not an inexpensive um, investment to get sales and marketing right, but um, you, you, we, we often really try and try and see our companies spending a, a significant proportion of revenue on sales and marketing to really stimulate that growth. So yeah, it's a big decision to make that, um, but it, but it, it does definitely pay dividend. There's also, and that goes again to the point on finance as well as you have to make sure that your analytic, analytics are strong enough to make sure that you are acquiring customers in a profitable way. Mm-hmm. And so you can drop your, you can increase your operating expenses, um, and that's okay, that's fine, um, as long as you're, you're, as long as you're acquiring profitable customers. Yeah. And um, uh, sorry, we've just lost my camera there. We'll get that happening uh, back again as, as we go. Um, Mark, one of the other questions I've got for you in that space is: Are you finding that at the stage that you, if you've got a fast-growing um, a customer client you know opportunity for a partner company and they want to grow faster that the natural inclination is to just take on more types of customers and sometimes sort of lose that focus on a really key customer uh, and as a result start to become a bit too generic margins sort of start to diminish they're trying to do sort of too many things at once and you have to to bring them back and sort of actually narr- help them understand they can achieve scale probably faster by getting clearer about the really key customer type or the really key problem they're trying to solve rather than allowing themselves to get pushed with a kind of growth mandate to actually to get too broad do you find that's an issue um, i think we i think you definitely have to stay loyal to what you're what you're really good at and what you're really strong at and you, you can you can end up spreading yourself too thinly and um, i think that um it's yeah it's absolutely important to sort of ensure that core engine of growth is a really strong one having said that one of the key value adds that we look a lot at is is the cross-selling and so we will often through our buy and build strategies where we might over a period of three or four years end up potentially bringing in four or five other partner companies into the business that, that all make strategic sense. That then provides a significant opportunity for, for cross-sell as well. So I think it's a blend, blend of the both, Sean. It's ensuring that you're sticking to knitting and, and, and delivering and ensuring that you're getting really good customer referrals, but at the same point, when the time is right, then then you look at more of those land and expand type strategies as, as well. So Mark, we've talked a bit about um, the people side and that, you know, one of those key enablers that you really got to get right is getting that that uh, that quality of team that's going to be able to get you to that next stage. What What next comes to mind for you in terms of things that founders need to focus on? I think uh, as part of that, and, and possibly they can do this at the time when they think about taking capitals, is linked a little bit in with the, the people structures, is ensuring alignment with with their with their employees and with their staff, ensuring that there's um, there's incentives for for those stakeholders to continue to drive the business. So that's maybe when they start thinking about how they're managing the equity plans in the business. Mm-hmm. That's something that we again always help help with when we take on board a partner relationship and so that goes to ensuring that the key key personnel in the business are equity incentivized to try and drive drive the growth so what we tend to do when we when we make an investment is we might um, bring on board two or three of the key key staff members that are going to be the next generation of talent so 
you're building both in succession to the business, but you're also incentivizing um, the uh, the staff to continue to want to drive the business going forward. So, can you give us an example, Mark? Because I know I, this is a conversation that I end up in regularly around, you know, what what should that incentive look like? Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, there's a myriad of options. Could you maybe give us an example of one that you've seen uh, be effective with a client? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we we will typically when we partner with. Um, with a, a company, we will um, have the founder retain a very large um, percentage of, of the business, so they continue to be very incentivized. You touched on earlier the, the concept of a first and a second payday, and so that's that's a really great structure in the sense that that enables the founder at the outset of the partnership to to take on take some cash, to take some some um, some some payment for for the business today, and that might enable them depends on where their personal circumstances are, but that may enable them to retire some debt or pay off school fees, whatever that is that um, you know is, is important to them. So the founder then continues to be incentivized, but has the opportunity over the midterm to crystallize a very powerful second payday when that business ultimately goes through exit. Um, but in addition to the founder, because as we said right at the outset, if you're building that organizational structure, you need to have a handful of really strong people around you as well, that's the opportunity to to bring on board um, that handful of people into the equity as well. Uh, and that might be a direct, direct equity at the outset, or it could potentially be performance-related equity dependent on hitting certain targets in the business. So there's very various streams or, or d- different approaches you can take, um, but it is important, I think, to have that alignment with the core, core management team as well. And does that typically, you know, I know a lot of people are concerned when they think about starting to add in other equity holders. Um, quite often there's a concern around tax consequences for the person who's receiving that equity um, stake. Can you just talk to that um, for, a, for a moment? I know some people are, you know, whether it's options that they're getting or, you know, that they're finding it, some using some phantom equity scheme to mm. navigate around the potential tax implications for individuals um, who might be receiving a couple of percent or, or something along the journey. Yeah, for sure. So we we tend to have ours as a very um, small, quite selective group is is the first thing to say. And I think that's, excuse me, I think that's important because that really um, provides sort of a concentration of of where the equity is. Obviously, you see a lot that gets spread very, very much across the organization. And I'm sure that works for some companies, but certainly on, on our partner deals, we tend to keep that um, relatively well well clustered. Um, our, our deals are structured so that um, the taxation implications are upon exit of the investment, not not at the outset. Yeah. Um, and so that works. That's worked quite well for for the employees, so that they're not facing tax tax charges at, at the outset. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's important for um, for many. It makes a it makes a lot of sense. I always think you know when they when they say, well, who who should I be incentivizing? It's like, well. Who's going to be driving the growth? Who, who's That's fundamentally right. critical to your ability to scale it? Yeah, those are the people that really need to be on the journey and and uh, and usually have the know they have the talent and the capability that can make an impact, and therefore usually expect some remuneration in that regard anyway, because um, they're coming with that mindset. Um, what else? When when you think about you know other um, key things that you really would like to see founders focus on, what would be next? I think optimization across the business is is important. What what do I mean by that? Um, that's really 
breaking down the the business, looking looking at the looking at the product offering, ensuring that that's an enduring product, and then really thinking smartly and cleverly as to whether that's being priced at the at the right um, at the right level, and and where you can do trying to build as much visibility into the business as possible, by which I mean pivoting those one-off sales into more recurring revenue type nature of sales, so more subscription-based pricing in as as much as you can do. You know, maybe a great example of that is we've had one partner company um, within the business over the last few years that has very strong software offering mm-hmm. that it, that is sold on a subscription basis. Um, in addition to the software offering, a number of their clients were also taking a, a hardware offering as well. And so we've really, over the last two years, we've pivoted that business so that rather than selling those hardware sales on a one-off basis, we've rolled those into blended subscription deals. <clears throat> so that increases both the recurring revenues of the of the of the group which has the added benefit once you have more forecast confidence then you can make investments you can drive up your sales and marketing that grows more sales and so you get this <clears throat> excuse me you get this virtuous circle coming through or mm. virtuous cycle coming through which is which is really helpful in that regard so and building as much forecast visibility into the group i think is a, is a really good part of that optimization structure and does that do you see that essentially directly turn into value? Uh, so you know, is that part of the discussion when you're talking with a founder who's only run a transactional model for you know for probably some period of time mm. to say actually when you think about how an investor is going to be looking at your business or a, or you know a trade sale or, or to a strategic, they're going to be looking at the forward visibility of this and wondering how much they can count on. And to the extent they can count on more revenues in the future and they've got greater certainty, to that extent, the valuation increases. Is that is that how you would sort of explain that to them? But spot on, Sean, that's exactly right. And that's that's what you're trying to achieve in these is that you, you drive your valuation multiples up really firstly through scale. So building a, a, a broader size business is, is really helpful. We've typically found that once you start getting over $10 million of, um, of EBITDA, then that's when you really start appealing to a much broader base of potential buyers. So that scale is important. And then secondly, to the point you're making is the forecast visibility. That is really helpful. And um, a buyer <clears throat> will always be willing to pay a higher multiple for a revenue stream that they have a lot of confidence in as well. Yeah. And um, and just the, the, the collection of the revenues drives the ability of how to invest and the cash flows then spin out from that. So it just makes for a much, much more uh, attractive business. It also enables the founders and the management team to think about moving into other adjacencies as well. If they've got the core business um, performing really well and generating good visible cash flows, they can use that cash flow for reinvestment into other areas. And the business over time then just becomes significantly more powerful and you get more and more touch points into your clients as well. So the stickiness of the, re- of the revenues really increases. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And what about when, um, when you're thinking about your strategy, so you've just taken on a partner company, you believe in it, you think you can add value to it, you can see a strong sort of path to exit. How important is it that you've identified what the exit's going to look like yeah. at the outset? And how much does that influence the strategy that tends to, I guess, the execution plan and the strategy to get there? That's, that's right. So in the run-up to a partner investment, we, we will, through our um, investment process, run a significant number of workshops with the founders 
and we will often take external due diligence and, and, uh, and leverage some of the best consultants in the market on, on the industry to really ensure that we get under the skin of, of that industry and understand it inside out. And um, even before we've made an investment, we will have always identified the potential ex exit routes that we we can potentially go through over the midterm. You ideally want to be, in order to try to maximize your opportunities, you want to ideally be seeing multiple potential buyers of, of the business. Uh, and that, as I said, I think earlier, can be potentially through IPO, through a trade sale to a larger player, possibly an offshore player, for example, that wants um, entry into the Australian market. And then thirdly, potentially into a, uh, a private equity player that may, may play in the mid to, to upper market. So our, our expertise is around the small to mid market, building businesses and then potentially exiting them to either trade, private equity or through through IPO. But it is important um, to, to think about that exit. Uh, something we always look to do is we look to try and see what the largest players in the market globally are doing in that space, what is best practice. And that will often um, feature quite heavily in our strategic plans for the business as well. Uh, and you can get a lot of tips and understanding as to as to where the strategy can 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 go from that perspective. Got it. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So you start yeah. to answer the question. You start planning from the exit right right from the outset, from and then an exit process will often take a good year once you've actually pushed the button um, and you've decided that the business is ready for exit. It will take a good year of, of preparation and, and moving towards that period. And when you think about setting founder expectations uh, around what does an exit look like for them? Now, some people know that they want to continue to be involved. They just don't want to be as hands-on and operational anymore. Some may be thinking they want, they'll just want to sort of wipe their hands of it. They will have done enough by then and they're keen to just yeah, um, do something else or sit on a hammock or go on holidays or whatever it is. How do you talk to founders and what is your experience of what they think they want to do when they get to the stage of a transaction being completed uh do you find that more of them want to stay on the board more of them want to stay involved more of them want to get out completely and what's the implication for how you guide their expectations knowing that the incoming purchaser uh, is going to have their expectations of actually how long they want that founder to hang around uh and you know to sort of i guess protect their investment in the in some kind of handover like what can you just talk mm -hmm. a little bit about how that that piece plays out yeah, good, good question. And actually, what I'd do is I'd pivot the other, pivot it the other way, and I'd actually say what we do right at the outset is we we find out really what it is that's driving the founder, um, what ambitions they have, and what what they see as as their summit. And you you know you might, for example, have a founder that absolutely wants to, as we did in the case of our partnership with a business called ReadyTech absolutely wants to get that business to to be listed on on the asx and that's their one of their key key career and life ambitions um, and that's great in that regard and we will basically then work the strategy in in and around that you may have other founders that want to just do two years and then as you said move more into the backdrop and potentially become a, a board member or indeed, we may have others that, um, from a succession perspective, want to step out of the business entirely. So, effectively, everything is emanating from what the founder wants when you when you have a partnership with with Pemba, and then we will then structure around that. If 
to your point, the founder is in the near term wanting to potentially step back and, and take a bit of time out, then that's really important, therefore, that we build a succession into the business because any buyer naturally is going to want to have um, longevity of service when they take on the business as well. They're going to want to understand that the key key managers in the business are still there for their journey as well. Um, we, we're typically, as I said, in the five sectors we're operating, and they're all very headcount, people headcount businesses, people heavy businesses, I should say. And so with that in mind, the, the managers and the founders are really important. So it really culminates, it comes down to what, what the ambitions are of the founders, and then we will then work out a strategy around that, that that helps them achieve that. Got it. Okay. And so if I'm a founder and I'm thinking, you know, I'm in the process of scaling up and I seem like I'm doing a good job, you know, my, my revenue, my earnings are growing year on year. Let's say, you know, we've got a mm. nice strong growth rate and we're sort of, I don't know, 30, 40% year on year, both top and bottom line. Everything's going well. We've bootstrapped it all ourselves. We're just funding everything out of cash flow. Is there a reason that I should take on a capital partner? Like how, if I'm that founder and I'm thinking, do I need a capital partner? Mm. Should I be taking on a strategic partner? Like what? What questions would you have that person ask themselves to see whether it is because, you know, it's probably not right for everybody, right? Um, but who would it be right for? Like what questions should they be asking themselves that would help them identify whether they'd really benefit? Yeah, I think that's right. I think ultimately, again, if they look forward, they, it's not always easy looking forward, but if they look forward over the next three to five years, are they going to get to a point in the business where um, they're, they're comfortable in it with that current trajectory or do they want to, to speed that up? Um, are they asking themselves what, what the succession is for the business? There's a lot of family-run businesses in, in Australia that were set up by the baby boomers um, and potentially their children are not wanting to come into the business. So they're running into succession issues. And what does their legacy, what's their legacy want to be? What do they what they want to leave? Is it really important that they have business with their name on that's that's really high profile? And um, these are all things that they they should think about and and should consider. To your point, it's not for everybody, um, and and a lot of businesses, frankly, don't don't need to take capital. They can continue to to grow as they are. Um, but that opportunity, not just taking the capital, because that's more of a commodity, um, as we talked about earlier. It's about that partnership um, and working with like-minded people that can really help you um, drive the business, provide you with support and insights that you might not otherwise get. Um, but it really does ultimately come down to, to what the founder wants to achieve over the next five, 10 years. What do you find? I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I know that one of the, um, sorry, it's a great statement because one of the things I know that founders wrestle with when they're thinking about should I take on a capital partner they might go you know what I know I don't know everything and so I know I could get access to people who might know a bit more than me about how to grow this thing faster however I'm a bit nervous about giving up any control I've run yeah. I'm a 100% shareholder I've run this thing or I get to make all my own decisions no one tells me what to do I might have advisors but actually if I don't like what they have to say I just say thanks very much and I do my own thing anyway what are the implications for me though if I take on a strategic investor we've obviously kind of aligned on a plan but what if mm. we're then part the way down the execution of that plan we talk about strategy or the strategy needs to shift but we don't agree uh, anymore and I've got a you know 20 or 30 percent um, shareholder for example now as a as a partner how does that play out uh, do you find that do you find that uh, that that can be an issue sometimes and or how do you sort of head it off at the past to try to avoid it becoming a problem 
Yeah, that's right. Founders naturally are always always concerned in that regard. They've had 100% of the business to date, and, and that does obviously change when you do a partnership deal. But what I would say, again, it's an important point when you're partnering with Pemba is that because we're non-intrusive, really um, the the keys to the cabinet very much remain with, with the founder and the management team. They're, we're not business operators. They are the business operators. They know the business inside out. And, and as a result of that, we are completely um, and utterly reliant on the founders. And therefore, we have to have happy founders that are comfortable with, with the journey. And that's the best way to achieve that is they can determine and um, dictate that journey. So that goes to a lot of upfront planning before the partnership is consummated, ensuring that both parties completely are aligned and agreeing on what the strategy should look like. I think it's important if they're considering a capital partner that um, you're on the same form of form of equity, so everybody's uh, in it in it together Aligned, in that yeah. in that regard. I think you've you've agreed what the strategy should look like. You've you've agreed what the key hires should be. You've agreed on what the product service outlook is like. You both understand and know know the industry well. But ultimately, for us, the, the power absolutely resides and, 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 and is left with, with the founders. But that is definitely something that a lot of founders have to grapple with um, as, they, as they make a, a partnership deal. The balance is you get um, a really strong shoulder to cry on when, when things are you know, not necessarily always working well. Um, you also get um, a, a well-resourced team that can tap into consultants that also provide you with a lot of anecdotes and perspectives that you might not have, have had. It's a lonely journey as a founder. Um, and I take my hat off to the, to the founders because they just do a phenomenal job on building businesses. So to have that support network there in place, I think is, is, is really powerful as well. And to your point, you know, it's a, it's somebody who's got the same, if you, as long as your equity um, structure is aligned and you are therefore tied at the hip with the same alignment on the same objective and the same outcome, um, you know, obviously prorated for your for your equity um, shareholding, I think that's just unbelievably important. And one of the things I really like about what you said is how much effort goes into agreeing that upfront before the partnership is consummated. And I think that's one thing that many founders may not realize. Uh, and, and it's probably also not the same with every capital partner, right? Like many would, I really like the business. We've agreed a price. We've agreed a structure. Okay, great. Let's do the transaction. Okay, now let's get into talking about strategy. Yeah. And then you find yourself, you're three months down the path going, oh my goodness, like we think we should be running this business differently. And that's yeah. all of a sudden now a problem. Uh, absolutely. And I'd also I'd recommend any of the founders listening that they should take significant number of references from from the partner they're looking to potentially partner with. And um and also references not just current current partnership deals, but go back to ones when ones. times were economically tough, you know, whether it be at the start of COVID or whether it be through the global financial oh, crisis. Yeah. How, did, how did your potential capital partner react during that time? Because it's all great when things are rosy, but um, you know, if things get a little tougher and, and, and budgets start slipping as they always do, how does that um, capital partner react during that time? Do they go straight away and want to take cost out of the business, for example, and damage mm. potentially the long-term um, long growth of the business just to sort of hit short-term numbers? Um, that's, that's not a partner that you ideally want to be partnering with. So, mm. again, taking the references is really important. And that's, again, something we really encourage our, the founders that we partner with is speak to any of our, 
any of our partner companies past and present because you know they will openly tell you what it's like to uh, to work with us i think that's one of those funny things that um almost like a, a property purchase where you know people are making significant financial decisions but actually probably put less effort into scrutinizing that deal than they probably do to something that's yeah. it's incredibly small in comparison in terms of the risk profile but if you're going to take on a capital partner you may just be to your, you might really like them you might have great rapport you might just be operating off gut feel and everything they've said sounds great but to your point what happens when the going gets tough and there's bound to be some tough periods yeah. uh and yeah how they respond under stress i think is a really interesting and important test Absolutely. Absolutely. Mark, if you had one more opportunity to share something that you'd really like to um, get across to founders or something you'd really love to spend them, have them spend time considering if they're really planning to scale, what would that be? So we've talked about org structure. We've talked about um, equity plans, go, go to market. Um, I think that, I, I, I think really just, just, just make a really ambitious, an audacious plan on a three to five year view think about what the business needs to look like then and then backtrack to work out what it what type of resources that you need to achieve it goes a little bit to the org structure i guess but mm. it's probably broad it's probably broader than that um and so that goes to what what new products can you introduce what new services can you can you introduce um, but the other thing is really it's really important that the founder enjoys the journey and we say this to a lot of our a lot of our founders, it is it is tough uh, at points, and we say it's really important actually that you that you enjoy it. Um, certainly, something I've particularly enjoyed is the is the buy and build process. So I'd actively encourage the founders to answer your question a bit more directly, is to think about the buy and build as well. Are there other businesses out there that you can partner with that expedite your growth your growth outlook? Mm. Yeah, I love that. And I think, you know, it might seem so simple to say, well, start with a three to five year plan and work backwards. But I know a lot of businesses that are actually very successful that have absolutely no three to five year plan because they've, the business has evolved. It's just, you know, yeah. sort of grown off the back of saying yes to this, see a problem, say yes to that. But actually, if you, it's very difficult to know how you should make your investments if you don't know where you want it to be in three to five years. We think about that. We probably tell our kids every day when they're doing high school, they've got to think about what they want yep. as an outcome and work back from that. But actually, uh, you know, sometimes we don't even apply it to our businesses because maybe that's just not the way that we got to here. But the skills that got us to today are not necessarily, and the strategies may not be the skills or the strategies or the people that we need to get us to tomorrow. That's right. Mark, I really, uh, I really appreciate the time that you've shared with us today. And I know the amount Pleasure. of years and experiences that have gone into uh into the sort of information that you supply with us today and i'd like to acknowledge the way pemba's operating because i think you know and i've certainly experienced in different you know through colleagues and also in different parts of my own career that question that you are encouraging your potential capital uh, your potential business partners uh, company partners to ask around do do your research go back and speak to all of our previous clients, previous ones as well as current ones so that you can get a true and holistic understanding as to how we operate when going top, when times are tough as well as when times are good. Do we sort of double down and seek to invest further if there's an opportunity to and what do we do when it gets tough? That's actually an incredibly important question for people to ask and I think it's probably not asked enough and there's probably a lot of um, partnerships that go sour because uh, one of the other things I really like that Pemba's doing is 
that sounds like a significant amount of effort that goes in up front, which, you know, potentially is a risk because there's a whole bunch of extra costs that goes in on both parties' sides to make that investment of time and not knowing for sure then whether the transaction is going to take place or not. And so you sort of, you're stacking the deck up front with no certainty of an outcome, but actually by doing so, once you've transacted, the the partnership's got all the ingredients necessary to be to sail and to sort of succeed as a partnership, as well as you know sort of excluding the business and its capacity to perform as a partnership. You've got the right ingredients to make the partnership work, which is super critical, I think, if you're going to have somebody that's going to be that influential uh, in sure. your journey. So, um, very exciting to hear. Thank you very much for sharing with us today. How can people Thank get you. in touch with you or or follow along with what yourself or Pember are doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you for, for having me today. It's been great. would love to hear from founders that, that might have interest in and think they're a, a potential partner for us. Um, LinkedIn is a perfect way of, of doing it. Um, so you can, I'm very happy to connect over LinkedIn or Sean, if there's, if you have member companies that, that want, please, please send them my way. No problems at all. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed the show today uh, with Mark Bryan from Pemba. Thank you so much, Mark. A couple of things before you go, team. If you enjoyed the podcast today, of course, uh, please jump on um, Apple Podcasts, obviously subscribe, uh, leave us a review and let us know what you think. The team absolutely love it. helps more people find it and we really appreciate that. If you'd like to know when new episodes are going to drop or also when the uh, when guests provide um, tools or templates or frameworks that you might find valuable, uh, they give us to those and those people who are leaving their emails uh, on the website get access to those uh, as soon as those things pop up if you like the socials you can find us on at scalarts podcast uh, on any of your favorite socials but remember that the only thing that can truly truly guarantee that you're not going to be able to scale is actually to give up so if you are you know if you are succeeding and want to get there faster then maybe it's time to look for a potential capital partner if you're finding things tough you got to stay 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 in the game stay unshakable in your faith um, that you're going to get there but remain flexible in your approach you've been listening to the scale podcast i'm sean Steele. look forward to speaking with you again next week thanks so much mark that's great thank you sean G'day everyone, just a couple of quick things before you go. If you have questions that you'd love myself or an upcoming guest to tackle about challenges that you're facing in scaling your business, please just jump straight on the website, scaleupspodcast.com. You can record your message straight from your mobile by hitting the button on the right-hand side of the page, or you can just email them the old-fashioned way, questions at scaleupspodcast.com. And just a quick reminder, nothing we spoke about today constitutes financial or business advice. If you are considering making big decisions in your business, Seek out a professional who can look at your situation in detail and make sure you're getting sound, personalized advice. Thanks for listening. Look forward to being back in your podcast feed next week.